Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, on this the 4th of May 2017, I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Graham of the excellent YouTube channel Five Red Pears, which doesn't obviously have anything to do with fruit, so far as I can tell, but uh, I, I may be wrong, and I'll be asking him about that in just a moment. Five Red Pairs has been active since 2011 and has over 70 videos, most of which are aimed at debunking the claims of contemporary flat earth theorists on the internet. And just in case there's anyone out there who hasn't encountered this sort of thing before, no, this is not an April Fool's joke, not this time anyway. There really are quite a few people seriously advocating that the earth is indeed flat, and so not a globe, as we've always been taught. And Graham's channel is essentially a response to that phenomenon, debunking, but also demonstrating with, I think, very well-made and easy-to-follow videos using straightforward logic and geometry that the Earth is indeed a globe. And I can't quite resist just quoting from his About page on that channel. Quote, This somehow ended up being mostly a flat Earth debunking channel, Hopefully it will soon disappear back into the festering, stagnant corner of social media that spawned it. End quote. Graham, thanks for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Oh, thank you for having me, Julian. Well, it's good to be speaking to you at long last. It's taken quite a while to find a convenient time for both of us to have this chat. But here we are. And we're going to be talking about this strange phenomenon, the flat earth theory. Mm -hmm. And there are two basic things that we're going to be doing today, just to put people in the picture. I'm going to be asking about several of the supposed proofs, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, that people come up with, or really just arguments, um, that are put forward by various well-known flat earth theorists, but also inviting you to share with us some of your positive reasons for continuing to believe in the shape of the earth as it actually is a globe um, and perhaps we'll have some discussion on how we might you know understand the whole thing as a phenomenon a cultural phenomenon in this internet era can we start though with you graham and the channel itself what motivated you to start using your youtube channel for this purpose um the channel itself was originally set up just as a channel for me to watch channels uh, videos on YouTube, I didn't really have any particular use for it. I mean, I, I've I've lost count of the number of channels I've had on YouTube. A lot, most of them were closed down because of uh, copyright infringement. Because I used to upload <laughs> a lot of material, and then I just got sick of doing that. So I just thought I'll just have a video channel. So I opened that in 2011, really without much particular reason to use it for anything. Then in about 2014, I was just looking through different videos online, looking at videos that debunk different things. And then I came across some geocentricism, which I thought was quite comical that people were still saying that. And then I kind of hit the mother load. I came across a flat earth video and just about fell off my seat. And uh, <laughs> I started watching some flat earth videos and was just gobsmacked i was just sitting shaking my head thinking these people must be joking yes, this sure. must be a joke yeah but you found in fact that that was not the case in well the majority of cases yes well the first person i came across was a guy called rory cooper he then changed his channel to my perspective and his channels subsequently disappeared from youtube so i don't know what his position is but he made all these videos that were bizarre animations that just didn't really make much sense at all. 
I mean, some of them were just bad arguments and some of them were just meaningless. And I was just thinking that this this can't be real. So he was converted from the globe theory, as it were, to flat earthism. Yes. And then went back again. No, I don't, well, I don't know what his position is at the moment. I mean, he just seems to have disappeared. Yeah. But at that time, yeah, he was definitely very much doing this. And he was the biggest person on YouTube at the time doing it. And I kind of naively thought all I had to do was just leave some comments on his videos <laughs> explaining why he was wrong. And uh, the responses I started to get were quite astonishing, not just from him, but from other people. They started to call me a shill. <laughs> yes. Which, <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> I was thinking, a shell? What's a shell? Mm. Um, the only time I'd ever heard the word before was the comedian Bill Hicks that died a long time ago. He used to describe celebrities that did advertisements as shells. And I was thinking, I'm not doing that. I'm not a celebrity advertising things. What are they talking about? And then, of course, it came out that a shell meant that they thought I was being paid. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> You actually think that I'm being paid by some shady government department to come online and leave comments on Rory Cooper's videos? You actually believe that? Ah, but can you prove that you're not, Graham? <laughs> no, I, I, no, I can't. I can't prove I'm not. That's the trouble. No, but I, I want to, I want you to state very clearly at the beginning of this show that you are not, in fact, being paid by any government across the world to lie about the shape of the earth. I am absolutely, definitely not being paid. Um, I wish I was. I'm definitely not being paid. I haven't made a penny out of this, despite what they might think. Okay, why did you call it Five Red Pairs, then? Oh, the channel? Yeah. People have often asked me about this. The, the reason is, for a long time, I was very interested in a philosopher called Wittgenstein. And his most famous book is called The Philosophical Investigations. And it starts with kind of a thought experiment to illustrate something about language. The idea is someone sent shopping with a note that says five red apples. So I wanted to call my channel Five Red Apples. But when it came to it, the name was taken. So I thought, well, what will I call it? And there's a really funny joke in a, an old carry-on film about a pair. Um, I don't know if I'll tell you what it is, but if you Google carry-on doctor pairs... You'll find the joke. <laughs> I can imagine what the joke is, actually. <laughs> Good evening. Oh, hi. Oh, what a lovely-looking pair. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so partly it came from being interested in Wittgenstein and also partly because I like carry-on films. <laughs> so it became five yeah. pairs. Well, this leads me, your interest in Wittgenstein leads me to ask you, well, do you have other interests than scientific, mathematical background? Because your videos, you use a lot of geometry, trigonometry. Do you have that kind of background? Yeah, well, I studied physics and maths as an undergraduate uh -huh. about 25 years ago. I was quite a lazy and really quite unremarkable student and sort of managed to get through it somehow, but I wasn't, and I certainly wasn't some Richard Feynman in the making, so I'm not making out I'm sort of really clever or anything. And then I became a maths teacher, so I'm qualified school teacher in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And also I just have a long-standing interest in science, maths, mm -hmm. and philosophy generally. 
Well, that explains a lot, actually. And it also explains the fact that your videos are so easy to follow, that, you know, you have substance in what you're talking about. And yet you're very gentle with people. You, you take them one step at a time. So that's the teacher in you. So I very much appreciate what you do. And I do encourage people to go and look at that channel, because that will be in the show notes. Um, just generally, before we get on to talking about the theories and that sort of thing, what, what kind of responses do you generally get from flat earthers i mean i noticed that you have interacted with your audience on your channel do you get many constructive dialogues going no <laughs> bluntly okay. um right. when you asked me how why i ended up doing videos i mean i didn't do videos for quite a while i mean i remember through the summer of 2014 i had quite a lot of time on my hands so i started getting into a lot of long discussions with flat earthers online these discussions would become epic. I mean, some of them went on for days, even weeks with some people. Wow. And there'd be times when I'd find myself arguing with about five different people at once for hours, and my brain was just absolutely fried with it. And it didn't seem to matter what you said to them. It didn't seem to matter how much sense you made or anything. They just had these excuses for everything and just wouldn't accept anything. So then I went on to the Flat Earth Society website and went onto the forums there where I called myself Here We Go Round. You can still find a lot of the discussions I had on there under that name. That was like a few years ago. And um, I just pretty much got to the point where I, I just thought there's no point in trying to explain to these people why they're wrong anymore. And I got bored of it. And then early 2015, I kind of looked into it again and discovered that to my absolute unbelievable horror that this thing was becoming huge. <laughs> I just couldn't, because yeah. when I first came across it in 2014, it was just a few lone, like a few madmen out in the woods howling at the moon on their own. But <laughs> there was, you know, suddenly there was all these new people. There was like Eric Dubay and Mark Sargent and Jernism and the Morgyle, you know, and all these people that were just suddenly coming out of nowhere. And yeah. it seemed like every day you went online, there was more people saying, it. And I just got sick of actually trying to explain to them why they were wrong. So I just decided to start making videos about it. Previously, the only person that had done videos about it against it was um, a YouTube user called Mary Ziller. They were brilliant videos that were very caustic and witty and used a totally different style from mine. And the early videos I made, I mean, I wanted them to be about as different from a flat earth video as you could possibly get because all the flat earth videos that I'd seen were sort of dramatic music and graphics, mm. but the content was utterly vapid. Mm. So I thought, I'll just make my videos pretty boring and just talk quietly about maths and why it's wrong. Excellent, yes. I suppose that explains why you have relatively few followers because <laughs> you're not yeah. just doing it in order to get people's attention. Now you're actually dealing with the data. Yes. Perhaps one basic fact at a time and yeah. requiring people to patiently watch what you do. I think that's great, of course. I think part of the advantage that I had on this is because the mathematics required to understand why flat earth arguments are wrong are at a level that a maths teacher deals with mm. because most members of the public have completely forgotten the maths that they learned at school. Mm. And in science, or a real mathematician. They're working at a level where they're not going to be in the slightest bit interested in arguing with a flat earther. So I was kind of at that level where I'm very familiar with the school level maths that's required to discuss flat earth. So I was kind of in a good position to do it, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, okay, so we're going to be discussing this from these two angles, and hopefully our discussion will be constructive. Mm -hmm. So basically we have these flat Earth arguments, or we have arguments in favour of the global Earth. So which do you want to go with first? Um... Give me an give me one of their arguments and let's start talking about it. <laughs> okay, right. Well, okay. So I, uh, in preparation for this, I looked at arguments advocated by uh, quite a few hours actually, looking at videos by Eric Dubay, mm -hmm. Geronism, Mark Sargent, The Morgyle, mm -hmm. Rob Skiba, uh, a couple mm -hmm. of less well-known people like Glenn Hall, who seems to be something of a special case. Um, yeah, he's very special indeed. And this guy called Dell, who you pointed out to me. Um, um, I will just say something about Rob Skiba in passing. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to talk much about him because uh, his main argument seems to me to be something like the Bible says or at least implies that the earth is flat. So because the Bible is authoritative, all Christians should accept that the earth is flat. So I won't be asking you about Rob because that's not really your area. Um, okay. And I'm saying to listeners now that I'm hoping to speak to Dr. Kyle Greenwood about that kind of thing when I hopefully have a chat to him about his book, scripture and cosmology i think it'll be very interesting so let me start here with one of these people in the list then eric dubay mm -hmm. he seems to be perhaps the most famous i'm not sure about that but uh, he's got over a hundred thousand followers on youtube now when i visit his channel you're immediately greeted by a video called 200 proofs earth is not a spinning ball video book mm -hmm. which now has over one and a half million views and it's obvious to me that this is not about proofs and it's not 200 because he repeats so many of them over and over again. And I didn't really look at the whole thing because I didn't think I needed to. So the one of those that he really likes a great deal is this one. I'm calling this the no momentum proof. Mm -hmm. um, so this is number 21. This is quoting from him verbatim. Quote, if the earth were truly constantly spinning eastward at over a thousand miles per hour helicopters and hot air balloons should be able to simply hover over the surface of the earth and wait for their destinations to come to them end quote <laughs> oh dear oh, i can't dear. even say that oh dear Go on. what's wrong with that what's wrong right um well first of all this is typical flat earth. They can't seem to get it into their head that there are two different questions, the shape of the earth and the movement of the earth. And they've got two completely different sets of evidence for them. But So this is a question really about the rotation of the earth. If the earth's rotating, all you'd have to do is hover in a helicopter and wait for your destination to arrive to you. I mean, for a start, that's like something a four-year-old would think. It's ridiculous. I just want to say generally that this weird phenomenon is that you find that people are online saying things that before the internet, if you'd said something like that in public, people would have just laughed at you, just shook their heads, and you'd have been treated like a complete fool. But okay, but let's talk about what's wrong with it. Well, it misunderstands the most basic principle in physics, which is variously called the principle of inertia, the Galilean principle of relativity, and it's also essentially equivalent to Newton's first law of motion, mm -hmm. which is when something is moving, it will move, continue to move in a straight line at a constant speed unless acted on by a force. Mm -hmm. So 
if the helicopter's on the ground, it's got the same momentum as the ground. So if it moves up, it will continue with that momentum. I mean, the argument that they're making, if it was right, it would mean that if you were on a train, if you jumped up, you would fly back and hit the end of the carriage. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought that myself. Did you mention that in one of your videos? Perhaps you did. I think I did. Mm -hmm. So you can disprove it for yourself immediately, can't you? Yeah, Pretty much, yeah. It's just about momentum. It's You see, the, the core of the argument, it presupposes something. It presupposes that there's something called an absolute rest frame. Now, in physics, you have what are called frames of reference. Yes. Um, say if you're standing on the side of the road, you're in a particular frame of reference, and you have a coordinate system that will describe the position of the objects relative to you. If a car drives past you, that car's in a different frame of reference, and it's got a different coordinate system that's moving relative to yours. Another way of saying Newton's first law of motion or the principle of inertia is that all frames of reference are physically equivalent. No one has ever discovered a way of defining a frame of reference that's at absolute rest. And this argument presupposes that there's a way of defining how something could be at absolute zero velocity. And also that all things have a tendency to try and get into that frame of reference. Hmm. Now, there's absolutely no evidence for this whatsoever there is no evidence that there is a way of defining an absolute frame of reference that is absolute rest. There's no evidence that there's a frame of reference that everything is naturally trying to get itself into. And if something's moving with a certain momentum, it will just continue moving with that same momentum. Absolutely. It sort of depends upon our intuition, doesn't it? We, we have a, a sort of ingrained intuition that there is a perfect rest because that's what we experience in our own lives. But that intuition is false, isn't it? Yeah, it's, well, I mean, that, that's a good point that you brought up because you could argue that it was the first true principle in physics and it was also the first counterintuitive idea in physics hmm. because before that, people would have just assumed that things have a tendency to stop moving hmm. because we are on the surface of the Earth. And if something's moving, either air friction or friction against the ground will slow it down and it will eventually stop. So it's reasonable to your intuition to assume that the ground or the earth isn't moving and everything moves relative to the earth. So it was a deeply counterintuitive idea to suggest that, no, that's not the case. There isn't any way of defining absolute zero velocity. And to this day, there isn't a single experiment in physics that has ever contradicted the idea of the principle of inertia. And it is counterintuitive, like a lot of physics is counterintuitive. And typically, these kind of flat earth arguments, what they're doing is they're, they're appealing to people's intuition. They're particularly people who, without being rude about it, are scientifically illiterate who've never studied physics or know very little about science. So it kind of appeals to an almost childlike view of the world. You know, if the Earth's spinning, then all I have to do is get in a helicopter and then my destination will come to me. Well, what is it that would make the helicopter stop moving? Okay, so there are some other related arguments, like, um, well, this is not verbatim, but this is the kind of thing he argues. He says something like, if the Earth were really spinning, then aeroplanes flying in the eastward direction should be faster than those flying westward. 
And he also says, if the Earth were really spinning, aeroplanes should find it impossible to land safely. So this is all this kind of idea. How do you react to those? Well, it's related, but this is getting into another area of misconception. It's related to the atmosphere as well. When an aeroplane is flying, it's flying relative to the atmosphere, relative to the air. That's what it's kind of thrusting itself through. It's, it's quite complicated, this thing. It's hard to see what, whether they're actually talking about the atmosphere or whether they're actually talking about the inertia problem here. I'm not sure which one it is. But the atmosphere is rotating with the Earth. So the atmosphere and two airports are essentially in the same frame of reference. It's like they're all moving together. Now, it's like the example I've given before is if you imagine you were on a train and you were sitting at one end of a carriage and you had a little remote control helicopter on the table in front of you. If you flew it from your end of the carriage right up to the other end and back down again, it would take the same time going up the way as coming back down the way, even if the train was going at 100 miles an hour. And it's because the tables, the carriage, and all the air inside the carriage are all basically moving together. They're all at the same reference frame. And th this basically applies to this argument about different airports. I mean, if you, if you take off from a certain airport, then you're flying against the air. The air is turning with the earth. So you're not going to go in one direction, get there faster than going and take longer going the other way. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, again, it's just like it's appealing to almost childlike intuitions about the world. Yes, as you say, your example there of inside the train carriage just shows you that it's wrong. I think it's a very good example. Yeah, and when Globebusters went over that example that I gave, Bob said that it was something to do with the fact that the train was enclosed and that's why that worked, which is absolute rubbish. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they're enclosed. It's to do with the fact that they're all in the same frame of reference. They're all moving together. They have to be enclosed because the air outside the carriage is in a different frame of reference. That's why it has to be enclosed in that particular situation. But if everything's in the same frame of reference, moving together, then if you fly from one airport to another airport and then back again, it should take the same amount of time. And equally, you should be able to land safely because, as you say, it's all in the same frame of reference. There should be no problem. Yeah. Not like he suggests with all these planes breaking up as they, as they hit the ground. Well, that would mean that you couldn't land a little toy remote control helicopter on, on the table in front of you on a train, which you obviously you can. Yeah. Okay, this is slightly different here. Uh, what about the horizon looks flat? So it is flat. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a, a listener called Russell who kindly sent me this quote. Mm -hmm. The Earth looks flat. When I do my own measurements using the ball Earth math, they don't match up with what I see. But I do see a flat Earth. This is the one I cannot deny and makes me be a flat Earther. So what you see trumps absolutely everything. It looks flat, so it is. Right, okay. Well, this is getting into the geometry of the situation and a concept in maths which is known as locally straight or locally flat. Um, if you take a very small part of a curved line, it's almost completely straight. It's what we call locally straight. And the smaller a part you take, the closer it approximates to just being a perfectly straight line. Similarly, if you apply that to a curved surface, if you take a small part of it, then it's approximately flat. 
Now, I can give you some numbers to give you an idea of how this works. Now, suppose you assume the Earth is a sphere with a radius of 3,960 miles, okay? And you mark on it two points which are 100 miles apart. You can imagine drawing a line over the surface of the Earth between those two points, which would be slightly curved. You could also imagine a line that's perfectly straight between those two points. So the line 100 miles long would curve and deviate very slightly from the straight line. Now, if it's 100 miles, it would deviate from the straight line halfway between the two points by about 1,667 feet. Now, to get that in perspective, if you imagine a line one meter long, so it's curved very slightly, then that would be the same amount of curvature as if a line one meter long deviated from a perfectly straight line by just three millimeters. And I've demonstrated in videos how curved a line 100 miles long would look on the Earth. Now, if you take it down to 10 miles, then a line 10 miles long on the surface of the Earth would deviate from a perfectly straight line by just 17 feet, which is a line one metre long deviating by 0.3 of a millimetre. If you get down to just one mile long, a line one mile long on the face of the Earth would deviate from a perfectly straight line by two inches which is, if you imagine a line one meter long, deviating from a perfectly straight line by 0.03 millimeters. Mm. So the shorter a line you take on, on the surface of the Earth, the closer it approximates to a straight line. Yeah. You've done a very good video about that, actually. I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. excellent what you've done there. But of course, they'll say that when you go up in an airplane or whatever, you see that it's flat. You're looking over, I don't know, maybe hundreds of miles and that you would expect to see some curvature if it was in fact curved. But you're basically saying you wouldn't expect to see a curvature. Um, it depends how high you go. I mean, I've done a video where I've shown, say, a thousand feet that there's no way you would expect to see curvature. The horizon would still look flat. Um, I mean, part of the reason that it's difficult for people to understand this is that the geometry is very difficult to visualize because the curvature is so slight, the Earth is so big and we're so small, it's difficult to visualize how little curvature there actually is. And again, it's appealing to people's intuitions about curvature. Now, there is the question exactly what height would you have to be before it became obvious that there was curvature? Because obviously, you know, if you were a thousand miles away from the Earth, you would clearly see that it was a sphere and it was curved. So at some point, it's going to start, you're going to start seeing it. Now, exactly what height you would have to be for it to be obvious, I'm not entirely sure. It's not clear to me that it should appear curved when you're in an airplane about eight miles above the Earth. Now, if you're eight miles above the Earth, the horizon is about maybe 250 miles away. So that horizon would form a circle around you, a huge circle with a radius of 250 miles. Now, if you saw that circle from the side, the amount of curvature would be visible. It would be very slightly curved. But you've got to remember that you're right in the middle of that circle and you're only eight miles above it, and it's 250 miles in radius. So most of that circle to you is practically invisible because you're looking at it at an angle where you can't really see most of it. Now, you've also got the fact that you're looking at the horizon through 250 miles of atmosphere, 
and cloud cover through a small window. So you're not really getting a very good view of what's going on. Um, so it doesn't seem obvious at all to me that the, the Earth would appear curved eight miles high. Now, when you're about eight miles above the Earth, the horizon would be slightly below eye level. It would be about maybe three, three and a half degrees to four degrees below eye level, which wouldn't be obvious, I think, if you were in an airplane looking at it, because you know what it's like in an airplane. You look out the window, it's quite disorientating. It's quite hard to kind of tell how far away things are and what you're looking at. Um, Most of those windows are very poor as well, aren't they? Yeah. It's not like you're in the cockpit and you're getting this really good view of everything. You're just getting a a look through a little small window. Um, You can download what's called a Theodolite app onto a smartphone, like an iPhone, and that can tell you high high above eye level something is. So if you get a Theodolite app and make sure it's been set up properly before you, you take off, you should find if you take a picture of the horizon with your Theodolite app, it will show that the horizon in an aeroplane is about three degrees below eye level. So you can check this for yourself. But as to whether it should appear curved... Um, not really, because uh, you're just not getting enough of a clear view of it, I don't think. I mean, say, take example, supposing you were eight miles above a perfect sphere and there was no atmosphere, and you could, you were just free to just sort of float there and look around yourself and look at everything, you might start to see that it was curved. But you're in an airplane, you're looking out a window, there's clouds, there's atmosphere. It's just not a simple question. So the height at which you would have to be at which you would actually really start to notice it, I, I'm not entirely sure. I would say that I mean, definitely by, you know, if you were 30 miles above the earth, I think it would be absolutely, unbelievably obvious, probably at 15 miles, you know. If airliners regularly flew, at 15 miles above the ground, we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation. But the trouble is the only people who do fly at those sorts of altitudes are those that will be covered by the term NASA. So Exactly, yeah. (laughs) um, And that just is a defeater for any explanation you want to come up with. Um, We'll get on to that in a minute. Um, So I suppose what you said really also deals with this. He comes up with various experiments that supposedly measure the horizon against a flat board or against some other indicator of flatness, a line or a series of flags or whatever that apparently show the, the horizon always to be flat. It's really covered by what you've said. That uh... well, it certainly would. It would look flat at um, any reasonable height. I mean, like I said, I've made a video where I've shown actually visually how flat the horizon would look at a thousand feet, and it would only be just um, if you imagine the diameter of a full moon. That's about the distance below eye level that the horizon would be at a thousand feet. If you're at sea level. The horizon's about 0.04 degrees below eye level. Right, okay, well, let's move on from that because we've looked at that quite a bit. Let's shift to a different kind of example here. This one comes up a lot with okay. respect to the Chicago skyline. Yeah, sure. from Lake Michigan. So he says, basically, again, it's not a direct quote, but there are mm-hmm. many large objects. He does this over and over again. Many large objects, like skyscrapers, other tall objects, They can be seen from great distances away, and that should not really be possible if the Earth is a globe because of this curvature. So how come you do, in fact, get pictures of the Chicago skyline where you can see more than you would expect to see? 
Well, that one particular photograph, I recently did an analysis of it. Um, I mean, for a start, it's below the horizon. You're not seeing the whole of Chicago. So all of these photographs, they always show something partially obscured by the horizon. Good point. So what flat earthers are really, they're bickering really about the amount that's obscured when on a flat earth, none of it would be obscured. Now, the photograph that they always bring up from Chicago, it was taken at Grandmere State Park. Now, there are sand dunes near the lake there that rise up to about 80 feet above sea level, above the level of the lake. Now, at that height, I did the calculations, the, the horizon would be about maybe 12 miles away. The distance to Chicago would then be about maybe 46 miles. Um, now, considering that the the Sears Tower reaches a height of 1,800 feet and there are a lot of skyscrapers in Chicago, I would fully expect that you would see them at that position, at that location all of the time. Now, flat earthers have put up countless videos where they've shown things like, a, a, I don't know, a skyscraper or something in the distance or a lighthouse. And they've done this analysis where they've saying it should be below this and, you know, you shouldn't see it. Now, I will say for... Almost every single video that I took the time to analyze like that, I discovered that they'd done the mathematics wrong and they just didn't know what they were doing. Okay. They didn't know how to take height into account. They've got this formula, distance squared times eight inches or something, you know, and they think that that's how much should be sunk below the horizon, which it's not. What you have to do is you have to calculate the distance to the horizon, then the drop from the horizon to the thing you're looking at, and that tells you how much should be obscured. Um, I think I've seen two examples that were interesting cases where it couldn't be explained with the geometry of the Earth alone, but they weren't particularly remarkable. And um, you have to bear in mind that when you're looking out across water, how far away the horizon is or how much something would be obscured by the horizon in the distance, it's determined by three factors. It's determined by how high you are above the water is determined by the distance to the object you're looking at. And it's also determined by atmospheric conditions. Now, usually under normal atmospheric conditions, the effect of the atmosphere on the situation is quite small. The, the general rule of thumb is you, you work out the geometric distance to the horizon, then you add about 8% under normal atmospheric conditions. And that's usually covers most of what these photographs show. But occasionally, atmospheric conditions can push the horizon back way, 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 way much further than that. It, and When you say it pushes the horizon back, and you're talking about atmospheric conditions here, are you talking about light actually being bent so that you see what you wouldn't expect to see? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's caused by refraction. It's caused by different layers of air with different temperatures, which will cause the light to bend so it means that you can see further than you know than you might normally expect to see i mean you have to bear in mind that what you've got is flat earthers out all over the world looking for interesting cases that are slightly anomalous yes. so they can put them online yes and of course once they're put online in an authoritative fashion even if they've done the maths wrong then they get copied and yeah. <laughs> chatted about all over the place yeah yeah like the chicago one i mean the chicago one's not even that remarkable when you actually analyze it properly because hmm. it doesn't specify where the photograph was taken i mean if the photograph was taken right on the shore of the lake 
I would agree that was a remarkable photograph, but it's not specified. And like I said, there's, there are sand dunes near the shore of the lake that rise to 80 feet above the level of the lake. So if the photograph was taken from there, then it's not really that remarkable. It's probably showing you a bit more of Chicago than you would see under normal atmospheric conditions. But most of these photographs don't show anything particularly remarkable. Hmm. And yet Eric Dubé makes an awful lot of that kind of example. Um, well, there is another one. There is another one here that I think is more inventive. Mm-hmm. He says that when we observe, again, faraway objects, but he picks on something such as a hot air balloon in the sky. Mm-hmm. Even though they're a long way away, we don't see them at an angle. We don't, say, for example, see them tilted away from us so that we see the underneath of the basket. <laughs> I, I rather like. I rather like this example. It's, it's, it's a bit peculiar. Um, go on. What, what's what, what's um, the problem here? Why don't we see the underneath of the basket when it's say twenty miles away? <laughs> Again, I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just it, another example of them dishonestly appealing to people's oversimplistic intuitions and their inability to. Imagine the geometry of the situation, which is, to be fair, difficult to visualize. It's about the only thing I've got any sympathy with flat earthers about. The geometry is extremely hard to visualize. The scale of the earth, how little curvature there is on the scale of a human being, it's very hard to visualize. But let's consider an example. Um, Say you were looking out towards a skyscraper and say it was uh, 30 miles away. Now, that skyscraper, due to the curvature of the Earth, would be leaning away from you at an angle of 0.4 degrees. That's (laughs) how little we're talking about. If you're talking about a hot air balloon that's maybe just a couple of miles away from you, or say even just, you know, say five miles away, let me do the calculation... Um, it'd be leaning away from you at an angle of 0.07 degrees. Um, it's just the geometry of the situation is very hard to visualise and it's just appealing, like I said, it's appealing to people's oversimplistic intuitions. It's a lovely example, though, you have to admit. I did think that it was particularly attractive. I mean, I, I imagined a sort of, uh, you know, drawing or something for a children's television programme with a little earth, you know, and little balloons going, going around it. And I thought, that, that's immediately what came into my mind. And it's yeah. like, oh, yes, this has got something to it, hasn't it? But as you say, no, it hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, yeah, again, it's, it is quite amusing, but it, it really it appeals to, like you said, these these kind of intuitions and inabilities to visualize geometry and it's a standard trick i've noticed flatters have been using right from the, the early days of watching the rory cooper videos where they use diagrams that are deliberately visually misrepresentative i mean rory cooper tried to make a video where he argued that a ship would look like it was leaning away from you as it went over the horizon but on his diagram he had Two ships that on the scale of the Earth would be about 2,000 miles tall <laughs> and about 5,000 miles apart. <laughs> just right. thinking, no, I've kind of missed the scale here a little bit, you know. <laughs> oh, dear. 
There's another one that I wanted to ask you here. How you've really answered it, I suppose, but it's one that again he brings up a lot. And this is he's, he's quoting bridge engineers, canal engineers, mm-hmm. railway engineers. I suppose it would be civil engineering. We could bracket that under, couldn't we? So, so, so we they're saying um, you know they lay down these bridge segments, canal segments, rail tracks, whatever, and they never make allowances for the curvature of the earth. They always assume it's flat, and that works out just fine for them. So there you go, another practical example of the earth being flat. Um, this is one I don't really understand. And if you're laying a railway track, what exactly is it that you'd have to take into account? The curvature of the earth. But it's you would just automatically follow it. Well, I don't understand what he means that the... I presume what he means is that if you were to lay these segments of railway end-to-end, that eventually the rail line would go off into outer space. <laughs> I presume that's what he means. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know what he means because you would just you would I mean rail, railway lines are, are laid in sections of track you just and the amount of curvature over even like I've said even over a mile it's like a curve deviating from a straight line by just two inches you know you're laying these short sections of track one at a time I, I, you would just follow the curvature I, I can't even imagine why that's even a problem it's just I don't even know what it means. So you would say perhaps that the joins between the segments would be very slightly uneven to take up that difference? Yeah, well, yeah they'd have to be, yeah, at an angle of... I couldn't even... <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, but they oh, must yeah, be, presumably, that's be, what's going yeah, on. They, it's, they, it's, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about a section of track being joined to another section, yeah, there would have to be a tiny, tiny angle. But, I mean, but railway tracks can go up and down hills. They could be following undulations of the earth that are way, way more than any the amount of the curvature would it have to take into account. Absolutely. I can't even yeah. imagine what it is he thinks that they're take, they'd have to do. I mean, what, what did, when they say things like that, you're like, what, what, what is it that you think they'd have to take into account? It's the same with building a canal. What exactly is it that you have to take into account? I mean, there are some bridges that are really tall. Like there's a bridge, um, there's something Narrows Bridge. It's near New York. And it's so tall that they did actually have to make a very, very slight adjustment because of the curvature of the earth. Hmm. So sometimes, occasionally, but for most engineering projects, the curvature of the earth is so insignificant, it's not even worth talking about. Hmm. Okay, well, he insists that aeroplane pilots do have to make continuous adjustments to their altitude. Otherwise, of course, if they're flying in a straight line, they will go out (laughs) into outer space. (laughs) Do we not have a positive example there? <laughs> yeah, the, the the air. I remember when I first heard the one about the airplanes flying into space. I, I just, again, I just imagined this like four or five year old going, but wouldn't airplanes fly into space on a spherical earth? Like, I can just imagine it. Yeah, but just a minute, Graham. You can't just laugh. Sorry. You've got to tell us why. <laughs> uh, okay, so why is it that, how is it that airplanes can fly around the Earth without making constant adjustments? Hmm. Okay, when an airplane is flying, it's got four main forces acting on it. Thrust, which is the engines pushing it forward. Okay, It's got lift. It's caused by the, the plane moving forwards and the air kind of up pushing up underneath it, which keeps it moving up, which holds it up in the air. Um, It has drag, which is essentially air resistance, pushing it back of the way. And it has weight, which is the direction 
of the force pulling it towards the centre of the earth. So it's got these four forces. It's got thrust, lift, drag, and weight. Now, as an aeroplane flies around the earth, the direction of its weight is very gradually changing because it's moving, it's turning towards the centre of the earth. Now, that will automatically turn the aeroplane itself because when an aeroplane is set to fly level, it's essentially set to fly at 90 degrees to its own weight. Now, its weight is a force that is pulling it down directly towards the ground or more specifically directly towards the centre of the earth. Now, if a plane was set to fly level and say there was some turbulence or I don't know, whatever, say it just it turned slightly, it would just automatically readjust itself to flying level because that's what the aeroplane's been set to do. It's basically been set to fly at right angles to its own weight. So as it flies around the Earth, the direction of its weight changes because it's always pointing to the centre of the Earth. So the plane will just automatically turn right. as it's flying around the Earth. Well, w- would it help perhaps if the aeroplane had a rail track that went out into outer space? <laughs> would that, would that... <laughs> yeah, I think that might get it out into outer space. I just thought that... These pilots, like, oh no, I've flown in outer space again. Oh no, I forgot to make adjustments for the curvature of the Earth. It's just, again, it's childlike thinking. It really is, you know. But here's a better one. I'll go on okay, so this is about again, again we're aeroplanes. So this is international flights, and they regularly avoid travelling the shortest distances between countries. So he <laughs> has uh, all sorts of examples. So okay, so just for example, a flight from South Africa to South America, you'd expect it to go straight across the Atlantic. Instead, let's say for example, it goes via London, something like that. Mm-hmm. That seems irrational because well, why wouldn't you go the straightest way? Ah, but then when you look at it on a flat Earth map, you find that the stop-off country in this case, say the UK is right in the middle between the departure and destination countries, so that makes sense. Ergo, the Earth is flat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it just doesn't take into account the economics of flights, you know. I mean, again, it's just an example of appealing to simplistic, oversimplistic intuitions and also just having a total ignorance of the way the real world works. I mean, the main ones that they talk about are the, the flights from the Southern Hemisphere, where there's, there, are, there aren't many flights that go across the Southern Hemisphere. And I've discussed this before. You know, 90% of the Earth's population lives in the Northern Hemisphere. The richest part of the world is mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. So well over 90% of the Earth's population who regularly take international flights live in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's just economic demand. There aren't going to be that many flights that go across the Southern Hemisphere. They do exist. Mm. But when they talk about you know these flights that they say, well, it goes from one country and then to another and it flies back down again. No, it's not. It's a connection. A person has flown, say, from South America to somewhere in Europe. They've made a connection and got a different flight down, say, to Africa. They've not just taken one flight. It's, it's a connection. It's just economics, you know? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so uh, we'll we'll move on then from Eric Dubay. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I was okay. going to ask you about a couple of his other videos that you might have seen, the Masonic sun-worshipping globalist cult of NASA, <laughs> or the, uh, the dinosaur hoax. Dinosaurs never existed, but uh, uh, I thought perhaps well, uh, well, I, 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 I would spare you those. But, um. <laughs> They're great fun, but, you know, um, well, I mean, that, that would be a whole other discussion, I think. Indeed. Um, all right, let's turn to Geronism. 
Um, yeah. Basically, one example here, because I, when I looked at this particular video, um, most of it seemed to be a repetition of the kind of thing that Eric Bay was saying. Uh, but this one here, he claims that the star constellations people see in the night sky, if they're living in Arizona, mm-hmm. um, are the same constellations that people would see in the sky at the same time uh, living in, in Russia. Of course, this is in the, in the daytime, but they can't see that because it's obscured by the sun. But if they were, in fact, not to be obscured by the sun, they would see the same star constellation as people who are seeing that constellation in Arizona. And he says he uses software to demonstrate this. Um, does he mean on the same night? I believe he means at exactly the same time. So people in Arizona, and it's nighttime, and there's a clear sky, and they see a certain constellation of stars uh-huh. and then at the, exactly the same time in russia it's daytime they can't therefore see the night sky mm-hmm. but if the sun were not there obscuring their vision they would see the same set of constellations as the people in arizona do in fact see um I, why, why would they Th- does he explain why well his answer is because the earth is flat and therefore how does he know that, that they would Presumably the idea is that the constellation is spread out above both sets of people, and they would they would see it on this flat plane, but the people in, in Russia have the sun above them on the disc. How does he think he proved that, then? Uh, with, with some software. He had some software that well, supposedly showed this. The, the, uh, but, of course, the software may may not be working properly. <laughs> I don't know. You know. Um, but the software would then presumably assume that the Earth was flat in the first place to get that conclusion i would have thought so but i don't know what he's done with the software of course what he's programmed it to do to be honest i don't know i'd I'd have to have a look at what he's done i mean yeah fair enough i mean journalism again has a proven track record for almost incomprehensible level of incompetence and complete (laughs) dishonesty i mean he's just a, a slimy con man in my opinion I don't know. I don't believe a word the guy says. Uh, I don't know what he's getting at when he says mm. this. I mean, I've I've heard similar mm. arguments about that six months later you would see different stars and things like that, which you do. Okay, well, let's let's leave that one. If you've not looked okay. into that, fair enough. Yeah, sorry, um, I'd, I'd, no, I'd have no, to know more about that's it. Fine. I mean, there's, there's so much stuff out there, I can't expect you I to know, answer everything. Um, this is a guy who calls himself the Morgyle. Um, oh, right, so yeah. this is, again, just one here. If the Earth is a globe, again, I'm not quoting, um, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> if the Earth is a globe with gravity holding everything down uniformly around the globe, then mm-hmm. because of the centripetal force of the rotating earth because that would be weaker near the polar regions Mm -hmm. uh, things at those regions would be crushed by the force of gravity Uh, but they're not so it's not a spinning globe um there's a grain of truth in what you're saying there's a very slight difference in weight if you were at the North Pole and, in, and if you were at the equator, essentially, if you were at the equator, you would weigh about uh, a one three hundredth less than you would when you were at the North Pole. That's the difference he's talking about. There is a difference, but it's it's absolutely tiny. So you wouldn't feel this difference? No, you wouldn't feel it. I mean, at one, one three hundredth, I mean, yeah, sure. your weight would change more than that just with a trip to the bathroom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because I go back to Russell, who quite uh, kindly allowed me to use these quotes. He says, quote, the earth doesn't seem to spin. I don't notice it. I don't think the air would follow it perfectly. And he says, gravity should feel stronger at the North Pole as opposed to the equator. 
This one I am pretty sure of and makes me a stationary earther. But he says gravity should feel stronger at the North Pole. But you're saying you wouldn't feel it. That's like saying that if you have something to eat that you you instantly feel a lot heavier. You know what I mean? That's the diff I mean the difference in is one three hundredth. It's not even that actually. It's slightly less than one three hundredth of um weight of difference. That's how much there is. So you you wouldn't feel it. I don't see why you would feel it. And as for being aware of the earth rotating, well it's rotating once a day. It's incredibly, incredibly gentle rotation. Hmm. The thing is, flat earthers leap on the fact that a point at the equator relative to the the whole Earth is moving at slightly more than a thousand miles an hour, and they're thinking, oh, "It's a thousand miles an hour! My that's goodness, right. that's, that's faster than the speed of sound." But <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah, it's yeah. not that really that fast, but. What they then do is, well, say, well, imagine imagine a smaller ball like you could hold in your hand and it was spinning so that the, the rim was going at a thousand miles an hour. That's the same as the Earth. No, it's not. It doesn't just scale down like that. Now, on the other hand, um, there's a lot of spherical proponents who will say, yeah, but it's, it's only rotating once a day. So imagine a, a much smaller ball rotating once a day. That's a fair comparison. In reality, neither of them are actually a very good comparison. If you actually do the calculation, well, one calculation I did was, if you imagine the Earth with a radius of three meters and it was rotating at a rate of once a minute, that would be a fair comparison with the amount of acceleration and forces involved in the rotation of the Earth. So if it had a radius of three meters, so a diameter of six meters, so still a, a sphere probably about the size of the room that you're in, imagine it rotating once a minute. That's kind of about the same as the Earth. It's tiny. Yes, and they often couple that, don't they, with the Earth's moving around in, in an orbit around the sun as well. And uh... I mean, if I calculated the acceleration of that. We see the thing is, if something's moving in a circle, it's accelerating. And... The acceleration due to the Earth's rotation around the Sun, uh, I, can't, I can't remember what it was. I mean, it was, it was tiny. I mean, it was absolutely tiny. It was negligible. If, if you talk about it in terms of miles per hour, though, as you said before, that sounds ridiculous as well, doesn't it? It sounds extravagant. Yes. Well, that's one of the things they do is they misuse numbers and make, use them in contexts that make them sound completely ridiculous and unbelievable. Like, you'd know, I mean, if you were on a roundabout and you were going at 100,000 miles an hour, you'd, <laughs> you'd be flying off. You know? You're like, well, no, but that's not a fair comparison because you've got to actually calculate the acceleration of a point at the equator due to the rotation of the Earth. And if you actually calculate it, it's 0.03 metres per second squared. Um, now, to put that into some kind of perspective, if you drop something, it starts accelerating towards the ground. It starts accelerating at 9.8 metres per second squared. So the acceleration at a point on the equator due to the rotation of the Earth is about a 300th of that acceleration. And that's why you weigh about a 300th less at the equator as well. When you actually look at the numbers properly, their claims just don't add up. There's no way, there's no reason why you would be aware of any of these rotations or movements. Okay, well, I want to move on to Mark Sargent, mm -hmm. oh, um, who you are very familiar with. Yes. And uh, I encountered him first on a program called Canary Cry Radio a couple of years ago. 
And the, the first thing that I noticed about him was he was extremely long on talk, but equally short on facts. Um, I, fi- <laughs> I, I found him, I, I mean, to give him his due, I did find him a very good storyteller. Um, and that's one of the main things that I've noticed about him, that he presents a fanciful narrative to people in his video series. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't say that it's true, which I think is interesting, but he, he doesn't present this fanciful narrative as an allegory or a metaphor or anything like that, implying that it's true. I mean, I don't see why he would otherwise be doing it. Um, and it describes, for, for anybody who doesn't know, it, it describes um, an early technologically advanced human race that came to understand that they were living on a flat earth and so they rebelled against the designers of the world they built a huge tower to reach them because this is the tower of babel so the designers then hit the reset button and fashioned a much more beautiful world um, suitable for the development of arts and culture etc but they fashioned that world in such a way to make it extremely difficult for anyone to discover the truth about the flat earth so i think this is really interesting the way he does this so it doesn't matter you know what experiment you do what cosmological observation you make you're not going to find the real shape of the earth because these designers have crafted the cosmos in that way to deceive you which is an incredibly unscientific approach to the whole thing. It, it makes it completely unfalsifiable. Well, yeah, well, that is it. It does make it completely unfalsifiable, and, but it's, it's fantastically funny, actually. I, I actually find it almost <laughs> genius. It's, yeah, it's, it's actually, genius, yeah. in a strange way, it makes him one of the more honest flat earthers because it's like he's saying, yes, on the face of it, all the evidence would suggest the earth is a sphere, but <laughs> but we know that it's not. Well, how do you know it's not if all the evidence on the face of it would suggest it's not? That's what a good conspiracy theory for me should be. It should be a good colourful story that's essentially unfalsifiable. So it doesn't really contradict what people know about the world and it's kind of... You know, it's just a bit of fun. To me, that's just a bit of fun. It reminds me of um, David Icke's shape-shifting lizards. You know, it's just like, it's just completely unfalsifiable. It doesn't really contradict anything else that you know about the world. You know, it doesn't trespass on other knowledge. And it's just absolutely fanciful. You know, as long as people aren't taking it too seriously, it's fairly harmless. But there are people who who are taking it seriously. I presume he's got a great following. And looking at some of the comments, people do seem to be thinking it's true. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that is the problem with that. I mean, they do. Well, the thing is with Flat Earth is there isn't any one sort of definitive version of what they're all claiming. They haven't got any model and there's no so and they're all claiming different things. So Mark Sargent's got a completely different narrative to Eric Dubay, who's got a different narrative to maybe Jarnism. So what do flat earthers really believe? Do they believe Mark Sargent? Do they believe Patricia Steer? Do they believe Eric Dubay? I mean what do they really believe? And there's no way they're all going to get together and have a conference and come up with a sort of conciliant theory, is there? No, no, because Eric Debay just accuses everyone else of being a shill. <laughs> and Mark Sargent is... I mean, it's interesting what you said about him, that he was a good storyteller, because to me, Mark Sargent is like an actor. That's what he's always reminded me of. I've, I remember watching interviews that he did with Patricia Steer, and to me, it was like watching a bad daytime soap actor, you know, he had all the everything perfected, the hand movements, the the raising of the eyebrows at the right moments and all the facial expressions. You're like, God, oh, this guy is just is an actor. 
I, see, I didn't see any of that because I was listening to a radio program. Oh, right. I just heard his voice. He was really very good at what he did, but I was straining to find any facts in there. <laughs> except that, you know, there's the, the bits of narrative that will come out. And, of course, some of the narrative I thought was, was absolutely hilarious when he talked about, you know, the sort of <laughs> global system of underground furnaces that would fool people into thinking the earth is hot at the centre, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so if you dig down far enough and you find it gets warmer, well, it's because of these furnaces, not because, you know, it actually is hotter um, naturally at the centre of the globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's in the, well, it's in those, I think that's actually in the videos that he presents. Yeah. And there are these extra, these are extra big furnaces for volcanoes that have been oh, put there by the designers. Yeah. Oh, that's genius. Yeah. That's genius. That he's actually probably the most entertaining flat earther. Yeah. He's the most, he's certainly, he's the most charismatic mm. and uh, the one that's most listenable to. I mean, I find that like the rest of them, I can listen to them for about five seconds, you know. If it's like Eric Debane, I just can't even bear his voice. As soon as he starts, like, the, if, once you'd consider the, the spinning ball earth and and he's, and our, like, our journalism when he, he talks in his journalism with his little short bursts of little sentences that he, he says. And then you get the Margyle who's got this really pretentious, preposterous way of talking about the flat earth <laughs> and the demonstrably preposterous that the earth is a globe. You know, I can listen to them for about five seconds, but, you know, Mark Sargent's actually, at least he's, he's reasonably entertaining. I mean, although he is just an absolute actor. I mean, he's an actor. I don't believe he even believes it flat. I, I agree with you. Yes, I, I I think he knows that he's pulling the wool over people's eyes. Absolutely, and enjoying it at the same time. That's the impression that I yeah. get. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah. I don't know what his real motives are. Hmm. Why he's doing it, but he's. Yeah, I don't believe him. As I've said before on this program, I think no Christian ought to take Mark Sargent's theory seriously at all. I don't know how many people do, but I'm convinced that some do. And I think because it fits a Gnostic view of reality, where you might have the you know the lesser gods creating a deceptive world without the permission from the top god, but that, that jars terribly with a Christian worldview, of course, in which the universe is created by the creator, the good God. So no Christian should take that seriously at all, just as a, a side thought there. I want to move No, I'm sure not. Mm, and I want to move on here to the person that you introduced to me called Dell, who you have mentioned a little bit. So let's talk about him a bit more. This is mm-hmm. YouTube channel is Beyond the Imaginary Curve. Mm-hmm. Fellow Scott, um, yes. and I watched his lead video called Flat Earth Taking to the Streets of Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, a couple of things to say about that, but I want, want you to tell us what you think about the way he does things, really. Well, I made a video about him recently. Um, he's, how, he's had a bit of a beef with me for quite a while. Oh, um, has he? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, he made a quite a, a long video about me last summer. This isn't five red pairs debunked, is there? Because when you look up your name on YouTube, you get five red yeah. pairs, and immediately underneath it, debunked. Yeah, there might be some. No, no, I can't remember what he said. He called it, but he did one okay. last summer about me, and I just ignored it because at that time, you know, he was just like some lone crazy guy, like ranting in his garden shed. But now he's suddenly got this audience, and he's gone out in the streets. And I thought, so I, I watched the stuff that he said to people on the streets, and I watched some of his hangouts. And he's certainly the least likable flat earther out there. I think he's the most manipulative he's good at what he does though he has a tremendous confidence yeah yeah i mean an enormous amount of misplaced confidence but um, <laughs> yeah i mean he certainly seems to believe it i mean he, he marched straight into the bbc the other day and, and demanded that they listen to him about flat earth i mean <laughs> and, really yeah wow. Uh, wow 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm quite happy for him to keep doing stuff like that because eventually the whole world's just going to find out and laugh at him. Oh, um, I thought for a moment you were going to say um, eventually the world's going to find out that it is in fact flat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. As far as I can tell, he's got three main things that he does it, or he uses as arguments. The first, it's all to do with water. He, he does this thing when he goes up to people. Can you give me an example of water conforming to the exterior of a shape? And people are obviously kind of stumped by saying, well, no, I can't. And you wouldn't expect them to be able to. No, he puts people on the spot unfairly, doesn't he? Well, there is. Well, I mean, there is only one answer to that question, which is, yeah, the Earth. You're standing on it, mm. you know, because you wouldn't expect water to be able to stick to a ball that you could hold in your hand. Mm. And he does these videos where he repeatedly shows that water won't stick to a ball that you can hold in your hand or in your back garden. And as I pointed out in the video, it does not take scale into account. It just assumes that the universe has this property called scale invariance, which means if you observe how the universe behaves on one particular scale and you just blew everything up a hundred times and it would all just behave exactly the same way but a hundred times bigger. But we know that the universe does not display scale invariance, so it doesn't prove anything. And I pointed this out to him. Other people pointed out to him. It doesn't really make any difference to the guy at all. His other one is water always fills up the container from the bottom up and then has a flat surface. Mm. Well, again, it's to do with this problem of scale and local flatness that even, say, a body of water a mile across, the amount of curvature over the top of the water would be absolutely negligible. It would not be visible. Right. You know, so he uses this as an argument that water always looks flat. The top of it always looks flat. Well, of course it does on the scale that you're seeing it as a human being. So he just it's just these dishonest tactics he uses to try and confuse people into thinking that maybe he's got a point. And he, he uses yeah, other yeah. tactics. Um, he showed someone a picture of the Loch Ness Monster and said, would you accept this as proof that the Loch Ness Monster exists? And the person's obviously like, no, 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 no. So, and, and then he says to him, so you wouldn't accept photographs of something as proof that it exists. So the guy's then committed himself to this saying, no, I don't accept that. So Dell then shows him a picture of the earth. And because the, this guy's already committed himself to saying that he won't accept photographs as the existence of the proof of things, he can't then back down from that. So Delza manipulated them into then saying, well, that can't be proof that the Earth is a sphere. And that really does remind me, as I said to you before the interview, of some of the, uh, you know, the new religious movements like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons, in the way that they will discuss with people, they will get you to commit to what they say the implications are of a particular scripture, then jump to somewhere else. And you've already committed yourself. So you're caught in that particular discussion trap. It just reminded me of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's what I said to you earlier, it's psychological priming. It's a way of manipulating people into agreeing to certain things. I mean, lots of people use it. It's just manipulation. It's just a way of confusing people. Well, one of the things I noticed about him is that uh, he did actually speak to one guy who was smiling an awful lot, I noticed, but he was a yeah. very pleasant chap, and he was actually mm-hmm. giving some good answers back to Dell. But mm-hmm. Dell got to that point where I think he ran out of tax, so what he did was to punt over to that idea of cognitive dissonance um, and misuse that idea. And that seemed to phase the person he was talking to at that point. 
Um, I find that a lot, this misuse of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And I think that what most people mean by it is this idea that you have a preset set of uh, ideas about the world and along comes some information that clashes with that and you feel very uncomfortable and so you push away that new information. Mm -hmm. um, now, it seems to me that that is actually a healthy part of one's psychological makeup. You've got to have a worldview and you can't just be all at sea all the time. If something clashes with that, you're not going to say, oh, well, I throw my worldview out then based on this little piece of information it's a kind of inbuilt protection system that keeps you healthy psychologically but mm -hmm. i find so many people will misuse this and say ah you don't believe what i'm presenting to you because of cognitive dissonance as if your cognitive dissonance is functioning in an unhealthy way that's always the assumption that's made and he was doing that with that particular guy yeah, and it's assuming that because you've gone into a state of cognitive dissonance that you are wrong. Mm, that's right. And I'm not even, I'd, I'd have to look more into this, I'm not even convinced that really is the proper meaning of cognitive dissonance. And my understanding of it is it's kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it means the same thing as I was going to say, that if you believe something and you're presented with information that contradicts it, that you temporarily go into a state where you're unsure what to believe. I think that's what it means. Right. Or something I like so. that, you know. But yeah, I think you're right that they're definitely, it's just one of those phrases that they throw around the place. And it's essentially a kind of psychological bullying. Yeah. It's a way of saying, oh, you're not prepared to, you know, question your beliefs. You must be close-minded and you're just saying this because of NASA and you're only, you know, they've got all these phrases that they use that are just ways of making it your problem that you're not prepared to listen to what they're saying when what they're saying is just, clearly nonsensical rubbish that you don't have to waste your time on you know let's move to this guy glenn hall uh, this special case I, <laughs> I just i don't want to be mean to him but i just have to mention him he's put himself out there he's put this video out so you know I, i'm quite at liberty to mention him uh, i just don't quite understand whether he's real about this or not so for those people who don't know, I will put the link in the show notes so you can go and see it. But he has this video called Simplest Irrefutable Flat Earth Proof. Uh, yeah. It's the most ridiculous thing, I have to say, that I've seen in this whole scene. Um, he claims to have a degree in maths, a doctorate in law, and to have practiced law for almost 30 years. And then he gives this supposed proof. So it goes something like this. Again, it's not a direct quote, but it's something like he uses a, a standard living room globe and a toy aircraft and he holds this little aircraft above the northern hemisphere of the globe and then he makes it fly down towards the southern hemisphere during which time of course it gradually turns as it were upside down relative to its position when it started at the top so now he says well it's upside down and that somehow proves the globe to be false and this is his direct quote he says you cannot refute that your airplane is upside down and your head is facing down End quote. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I saw that video. Um, How can he be serious? I mean, I, do, I don't even see what he's actually trying to demonstrate there. Do you remember when I was talking earlier about this strange thing on the internet that at one time there are things that people would have said that would have just been laughed at and somehow the internet is facilitating people to saying things that are just utterly ridiculous. I mean, I... I mean, I remember when I was a child, sitcoms on TV, and if there was a particularly stupid character, they might make a comment like that. I mean, I remember in an episode of Some Mothers Do Have Them, where Frank Spencer 
was talking about his grandfather coming to visit from Australia. And then he said, he's been on his head for like half the journey. And the audience all laugh at him. But suddenly now, you can go online and, and people are taking it seriously. I mean, yeah. I mean, okay, do I have to give an answer to this? The, the vertical <laughs> is relative to your position on Earth. When you get away from the Earth, there's no such thing as up and down. Vertical only has meaning when you're close to the surface of the Earth and it's relative to your position because it's always pointing towards the centre of the Earth. So wherever you are on Earth, you're not upside down. <laughs> you're at a different orientation in space compared to someone at another point in the globe. Um, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, how I don't understand how this guy can have a degree in maths or law um, or any other uh, academic discipline and not get that. It's extraordinary to me. Well, either he's lying or he's lost a severe amount of his cognitive abilities. I mean, I know of cases of, you know, things like that happening. There's a flat earther who recently died in Thailand. He was called Aaron Dover. And I know for a fact that he was once um, a brilliant young physics student. I mean, outstanding. And he had some kind of terrible breakdown. He was sectioned, formed some kind of fantasy that his girlfriend was involved in a conspiracy then he went to Thailand and became a flat earther and started talking about Jewish conspiracies running the world and stuff like that. I mean, they obviously suffered some kind of mental breakdown. And I know because someone contacted me that had actually known him previously that he'd once been an outstandingly intelligent guy. Yep. So it can, I think it can happen to people. Mm, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, very sad indeed. It's a very sad story. It does segue, though, into my last point that I wanted to bring up, talking about the grand conspiracy ideas. Yeah, I'll go to Rob Skiba because he seems quite keen on this. Um, Because governments do, in fact, lie, therefore, absolutely everything they always say is a lie. And it's all part of this grand conspiracy where every government around the world and all their science and space institutions and all the educational establishments are all involved in a deliberate lie to persuade everybody that the Earth is in fact a sphere. What's your reaction to that, what I would call an extravagant, to say the least, conspiracy theory? Oh my goodness, where do you even start with that? Well, for a start, governments are not our primary source of scientific information. Scientists are who do research in lots of different institutions all around the world and are independently funded from lots of different sources. So there isn't one all-controlling conspiracy behind everything. It's just not possible. But what's the mechanisms of this conspiracy? How does it work? I mean, you, you go to university, you're, say, a brilliant young mathematician, physicist. You go to university, you do really well, you go on to study it, postgraduate level, you're doing research into, say, cosmology or astronomy, something like that. And then one day you get a tap on the shoulder and uh, there's these guys there and they're like, can you just come back into this room here? We need to talk to you for a minute. Um, There's something we need to tell you. The Earth's flat. (laughs) And everything that you think you know about maths and physics is wrong, but we want you to spend the rest of your career promoting that And when you do any experiments, 
um, we'll phone up and tell you what the results of the experiments are going to be and what you're going to publish in the, the scientific journals. Because that is the scenario that would have to take place. Mm-hmm. Because we're not talking about we're not talking about just a few very influential professors no. being nabbed in this way by the men in the sunglasses. We're talking about every undergraduate throughout the whole world. Well, at what point do they get told this? Maybe they get their degree. Maybe they're doing their PhD. Mm. At some point, the, the, the mafia descends upon them. Yeah, they yeah, get told. Yeah. yeah, and and then what happens for this? I mean, what happens when scientists do experiments? I mean, do they get a phone call from the Illuminati telling them what the results are going to be? I mean, they're doing experiments at CERN, you know. Do they wait for the Illuminati to phone them up, right? That, well, you know, when you smash these protons into these, like, electrons, this is the, res- the result that you're going to publish in, the ma- in your magazines, in the journal. I mean, th- th- that's what they're suggesting the world works like. It's, it's amazing what the lizard Illuminati can actually accomplish, Graham. Oh, yeah, well, it seems like they have an almost infinite yeah. capacity to do anything. But, which so, so, so perhaps we need to, I mean, this is not from what they've said, but perhaps we need to consider it in a different way from a, a kind of sociological point of view. So you could say, well, actually, it's the fact that institutions have grown up over the years and people believe certain things and those orthodoxies get passed on from one generation to another and that sociological situation is and has been controlled by an Illuminati, let's say. Would that be a more plausible explanation? Not really, because you're talking about people who are becoming scientists, highly intelligent, who at some point would have to realise that the Earth wasn't a sphere if it wasn't one. Mm. Whether they were told or not, whether they got, you know, the visit from the men in the the sunglasses or not, they would work it out for themselves. I mean, we've been asked to believe, if you look back over the 20th century, that everyone from Max Planck to Einstein to Richard Feynman to Paul Dirac, Julian Schwinger, Murray Gelman, right up to Ed Witten and Steve Weinberg, a list of people who are more intelligent than, than people like you and I could even understand that every single one of those failed to work out that the earth is flat, either failed to work it out or colluded in a conspiracy. Now, which one would it be with someone like Richard Feynman? I mean, Richard Feynman was notoriously honest. I mean, he was known for his painful honesty and who near the end of his life uncovered the reason why NASA messed up with the shuttle disaster. And on the final report, NASA wanted to leave out his discoveries and he refused to sign the report until they put them in. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the kind of man we're talking about, Richard Feynman. I mean... So why didn't he reveal the flat Earth? That's what I need to ask you. Yeah. He wasn't that honest, was he? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, he wasn't. He must have been a liar. I must be wrong about Richard Feynman. No, yeah. I take your point. Yeah. And, I mean, another thing about this is that, you know, scientists, whoever they are, whether they're professional scientists or they're student scientists... Well, they discuss things. Yeah. There are staff rooms, there are student yes. unions, people natter about stuff. Is that all controlled as well? It doesn't make any sense. No, none of it makes any sense. I mean, it's, I mean, that's just one aspect of it, the science aspect of it, that you've got thousands of scientists all over the world, not just, you know, we're talking anyone who works in an area of science with the, the shape of the earth would be an issue. It includes physicists, cosmologists, astronomers, meteorologists, cartographers, geologists, anyone who studies earthquakes, plate tectonics, 
a whole range of experts who have spent their whole career understanding what they understand about the earth and don't just do it theatrically. You know, they're not just studying books. They're out there collecting real evidence about the earth. They've studied the earth in depth and you've got a whole interwoven um, series of disciplines that all come together and the sum total of that knowledge only works with a, sphere, a spherical yeah, earth. Yeah. I don't understand how that could possibly work unless everyone in science is either a complete idiot or is a complete liar. Totally agree with you. Um, I suppose one could say, well, it's because they've all been brought up in a certain way of doing science and they haven't embraced what's called zetetic science. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which, I mean, again, it seems to have a proper set of definitions due to this sociologist called Marcello Truzzi. uh, But... When I go to the Flat Earth Society, their take on it seems to be essentially that you you don't do science by forming hypotheses and then testing those hypotheses. What you do is you you go inductively and you just do experiments and you find what fits and you gradually piece things together. So, And then I've got the impression from Flat Earth theorists that they use the term to mean that you just believe what you see. You don't go for anything that's very theoretical at all. If you don't see it, you don't believe it. Well, yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, the zetetic method seems to be that have a look at the world. If that's what it seems to look like, then that's what it is. <laughs> and that just isn't the way it is. You know, we, human beings just don't have the capacity to just go and have a, just look at the world and understand all the kind of hidden rules and symmetries and patterns that are there. It's a ridiculously over-optimistic view of knowledge, isn't it? I think. Well, I think if that is what zetetic means, I mean, some of the stuff I've read about zetetic, I mean, it sounds like some of the stuff that science does anyway. I mean, science doesn't just make hypotheses and then go out and test them. I mean, it's a lot of science starts by just observing. Hmm. It just goes out and gathers data, first of all. Sure, sure. But that's what they, they say that you, you just stop there, don't they? They say that you shouldn't then form hypotheses and test them. That's the impression I'm getting anyway. Well, I don't know. Where do you go? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know enough about what. If there, hmm. I don't even know if it is a genuinely coherent philosophical position, Zeteticism, or if it's just make up whatever you want rubbish just to suit whatever you want to believe at the time type of thing, which I suspect it is. Well, let me just quote here from the Flat Earth Society, the wiki site. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have, for example, in questioning the shape of the Earth, the Satetic does not make a hypothesis suggesting that the Earth is round or flat and then proceed testing that hypothesis. He skips that step and devises an experiment that will determine the shape of the Earth and bases his conclusion on the result of that experiment. Many feel that this is a more reasonable method than the normal scientific method because it removes any preconceived notions and biases the formation of a hypothesis might cause and leaves the conclusion up entirely to what is observed. But science does that as well. I mean, that's part of science. It's just It would be just to go out and have a look. So it's just an impoverished view of science, isn't it? It's just cutting off certain parts of it and keeping other bits. Yeah. Yeah, it's keeping the bits that it's basically it's designing a version of science that you can use to manipulate conclusions to suit what you want to believe. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It does seem to be that. All right. Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, we've mm. we've done this debunking thing for a long time, so I really need to ask you if there's one or two examples of actually showing that the Earth is a globe that you want to share with us. Anything in particular? The specific evidence for the Earth being a sphere. 
Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you particularly... Because, I mean, you've got a lot of that on your YouTube channel. Of mm -hmm. course, very difficult to demonstrate because you do a lot of it with drawings. But is there anything, um, perhaps a prize example that you'd like to share with us verbally, if you can? Well, I'm quite happy to go through a few things. Um, first of all, there's direct evidence of curvature, which is the old ship sailing over the horizon thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, flat earthers have come up with all kinds of weird explanations. It's perspective. It's this, it's that. But... It, you know, it's ships are sick over the horizon, and once they're gone, you don't, you can't see them again. It's the same thing when you sail away from land. You know, it sinks below the horizon as you sail away from it, and you wouldn't expect to see the curvature from left to right because it's too slight. And it's not a contradiction to say that you would see things obscured by curvature, but that you wouldn't see the curvature itself. Now, there's a lot of evidence that you can use from the sun and from other astronomical bodies. Uh, you know, let's just start with a hypothetical situation. Supposing you're floating near the surface of a giant sphere, absolutely perfectly smooth sphere. It's got a radius of 3,960 miles. And you can just move about it well. You can look at anything you want. You can move up and down. You can move across the surface of it. Um, would it be clear to you that, that it was a sphere? Well, initially... It probably wouldn't. What you would see would be a horizon around yourself forming a circle and what would appear to be a flat surface. So initially, it probably wouldn't seem obvious that it was a sphere. But as you start to move around, you might start to notice other things. You might start to notice that the horizon moves away from you as you move up. And you might start to notice if you get really high up that it's dropping below eye level. So you might start to question, is it a sphere or is it a flat plane? Now, one thing you can do, you could do is if you had, say, a distant object that you could use as a point of reference, you could use that to help you determine the shape of the surface that you're on. Now, if this point of reference was very far away, so that essentially it was always in the same direction, no matter where you were on that sphere, then you could use that as a way of determining whether you were on a flat plane or not. Now, you could be at a place, say, where this point of reference or point of light was directly over your head. And as you move away, you might notice that then it's not directly over your head, it's at an angle above you. Now, if that object is very, very far away, that means that you must have turned for the object to be at a different angle. Now, we have an object like that, it's called the sun. Mm. And you know the evidence that the sun is a distant object is huge. I mean, if you look at the sun through a solar filter, you will see that it's exactly the same size all day and at all locations on Earth. And there are people online that have done that. YouTubers called Sean Hufford and Daza the Cameraman, they did experiments on this. And you can also see the same sunspots all day. So the sun is definitely far away, at least in the hundreds of thousands of miles away, which means all the light from it is parallel. Now, we know that at any given moment, at different locations on Earth, the sun appears at different angles in the sky. Now, that means that people at different locations must be at angles to each other because all the light from the sun is parallel, but they're seeing it at different angles in the sky. You have uh, a few, I think, excellent videos about this on the equinox yeah. where you show people pointing, yeah. little stick men pointing to the sun, um, and then you transpose that onto a flat Earth surface, on, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I yeah. think that's very powerful the way you do that. Oh, thanks, yeah. Well, Again, people do go and, and look at those particular examples. I'll put those in the show notes. They really are worth watching. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing about the sun. The fact that the sun is a distant object means the light is parallel and it means that it appears at different angles. Now, another thing as well is if, if you measure the distance from the place where the sun is directly overhead and compare that to the angle that the sun then deviates from the vertical at the location you're at, you'll find as you move away from the sun, the angle that it drops in the sky is directly proportional to the distance from where to where the sun is directly overhead, if that makes sense. Now, again, you can look at videos where I've done, I've shown that this indicates that the, the Earth is a sphere, because flat earthers try to claim that the sun is maybe about three, four thousand miles above a flat plane, yeah. and that's why it looks like it's at different angles in the sky as you move away from it. But if you looked at the relationship between how far you are from where the sun is directly overhead and the angle that it's dropping in the sky, on a flat earth, you would get a trigonometric relationship. On a spherical earth, you get a simple linear relationship. You double the distance, you double the angle. And that's exactly what we observe. And that's why we have lines of latitude and longitude that are related to the sun as well. And you can use the angle of elevation of the sun in the sky at midday to measure your latitude. And in fact, it's one of the ways that sailors used to do it. So there are all these relationships to do with the sun and the way it changes its position in the sky as we move across the earth, all fit a spherical earth. But also there's the, the direction that the sun rises and sets. Now we know that say on an equinox, it rises east and sets west. And in the places where it rises and sets start to move north, then at the solstice, they reach their furthest northerly point then they move down again till it rises east, sets west. Then they move south to the, the next solstice. So the place where the sun rises and sets kind of oscillates north and south at every location. Now, if you compare that to predictions made by the, the heliocentric spherical Earth model where the Earth is rotating on an axis and it's moving around the sun, and the axis of rotation is at an angle to the plane that the Earth is moving around the sun, that makes those exact same predictions. It predicts exactly the direction the sun would rise and set on every day of the year at any given latitude. So that's also direct evidence that not just the spherical Earth, but the spherical Earth heliocentric model is correct. And as I said before, when you map these kinds of observations onto the standard flat Earth model, you get incomprehensible things happening with the sun, where people should be no, standing and seeing the sun rise, and they're not seeing anything at all, or they're seeing an extremely short day, which they should not be experiencing. They should be experiencing half the day in sunlight, and th things like that. It, yeah. You know, incredible. Well, none of it makes any sense at mm. all. I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, the equinox. I mean, in two days a year, the sun rises due east and, and sets due west. Now, there isn't any path a sun could be following above a flat earth that could produce that observation. Mm. It's impossible. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's so simply obvious that that isn't possible. I have to say, it's not obvious just verbally talking like this, but once you actually look at your demonstration, then right. it does become yeah. very obvious. And I think, again, kudos to you for, for doing that. What I would be interested to know about this is, you know, what kind of reaction do you get from Flat Earthers to these kinds of demonstrations? Because I find them so powerful when I look at them. I think, well, how can anybody disagree with what you're saying there? But presumably, people do find the time and the will to disagree with you on those things. Well... This brings me to talking about flat earth reactions because I would say flat earthers seem to go through a few 
stages of reactions to information that doesn't suit them. The first one is to just they just completely ignore it. Oh, I suppose that's quite um, powerful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just completely ignore it. Would that be an instance of cognitive dissonance, perhaps? Uh, yeah, possibly. <laughs> I mean, say for example, this thing about the sun moving in a giant circle around the North Pole. Well, we know that in Australia that the sun rises south of east in the summer. So that one fact alone completely annihilates any idea that the sun's moving around the North Pole. And I've been making that point for three years now. Mm. And I don't know how they deal with that information. I think they either they just ignore it or, like I said, they've got a few stages. The next stage is that they become sceptical about the information. They start saying, oh, how do you know that that's true? Have you seen that for yourself? Ah, the Zetetic thing. Right. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, have you seen that for yourself? Like, well, no, but there's no reason to doubt it. Perhaps there is no Australia. I see somebody on Facebook put up a, a meme like that. Yeah. Australia doesn't exist. Yeah. That yeah, was that's, an excellent joke. That yeah, I, I was almost waiting for that. There's actually a, there's an excellent anti-flutter called Wolfie6020 um, <laughs> who lives in Australia, <laughs> and he's actually made videos showing the sun setting south of east in Australia, so he's made videos proving that that happens. Now, the next thing they do is, if they can't really be sceptical about the information, is they go into a series of what I call half-baked ad hoc excuses. Hmm. I mean, say, for example, the thing about the sun appearing at completely the wrong directions, as is predicted by the model that they promote. Apparently, on Globebusters, Jaronism was discussing the possibility that the sun could actually be northeast, but could appear southeast. Sorry, could you say that again? I didn't quite compute with that. Apparently, he was discussing the possibility that the sun could be, say, for example, northeast, but actually appear southeast. <laughs> right. And another okay. one that they do with the sun is, um, I, I remember I heard the Morgyle talking about it, like the Morgyle, and uh, he started saying all this weird stuff about... Um, that the sun was this strange electromagnetic phenomenon and no one really understands it. And, you know, and that's one of their standards. One of their standards responses to the, all the information about the sun is that we don't know what the sun is. Uh, it's a big mystery. I see. Yeah, it's all yeah, a mystery. Yeah, yeah. It can't be explained. And um, well, I'm thinking if the sun is actually in one position, but you see it in another position... Yeah. And have we got have we got some sort of strange hyper Ptolemaic epicycle going on here in the form of a, a massive mirror in space that uh, oh, actually, obscures the yeah. the position in the in the sky and and reflects it to somewhere else so that you see it somewhere else something like that. Yeah, well, it's funny you should say that. I've heard them try to use the idea that there's a giant mirror to try and explain the the southern stars. Oh. That was just off the top of no, my no, head, no, right? Okay. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you could you could be a flat a really good flat earther. You've got, <laughs> you've got the flat earther as a compliment actually. You've right? got the imagination <laughs> for it. Um, oh, I've oh I, I, the amount of excuses and weird stories that I've heard from flat earthers. Mostly they just insult me. That's that's mostly what I get. Mm -hmm. Like you're an idiot. Well, you you give as good as you get, though. I've I've seen some of your comments. And I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I think I do. Um, oh dear. 
I try not to get too nasty, but I mean, it's difficult, you know, when, you know, you get up in the morning and, you know, there are 10 comments calling you every name under the sun and you're just like first thing in the morning, you're like, oh. Well, you are a shill. You are working for the Illuminati with the sunglasses coming to get you in the morning. So uh, there we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Graham, it has been a delight speaking to you. Um, thank you ever so much for coming on the program. It's been wonderful chatting. Um, I do want to direct people to your YouTube channel. I say I'll leave a link, of course. But um, I mean, it, people will just search for five red pairs. That's one word. They will just find you, won't they, on YouTube? Yes. And uh, if if people want to ask you questions, I I'm not sure whether you're still answering comments. Are you on the YouTube? Would they be better off? Contacting um, you directly through the facility that's there on YouTube? Yes. If they want to send me a message and say that it's related to this podcast and that they mm. are serious and they want to ask a polite question, then, yeah, I'm quite happy to answer questions. Okay. If they just want to call me a shill or, you know, something, <laughs> then no. But, you know, if it's a serious question, okay. I don't mind answering that. Yeah, fair enough. If, if they make it clear that it's that they've listened to this podcast... Yeah. and they have something they'd like to ask me, then that would be fine. Great. Okay, so I'll say now, if anybody does want to ask Graham a question about anything that's been discussed today, then do use that facility there on YouTube and just put the capital letters TMR very prominently in your message, and then Graham will know that it's come as a consequence of listening to this show. So, once again, Graham, thank you very much for coming on. It's been delight to speak to you. I've enjoyed every minute. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you as well, Julian. Thanks very much. Great pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Graham. As you can probably tell, I enjoyed that chat a great deal. And I'm going to just say once more, please do go and check out his YouTube channel, Five Red Pairs, because you will find some really very good video explanations of some of those descriptions Graham has given here today, and some quite amusing material as well. I mean, um, on that score, I particularly recommend his video called Do NASA Fake Images From Space? Could the Earth Be Flat? which you'll have to watch to get a flavour of, because I'm not going to issue a spoiler here and now. As always, the links will be in the show notes, so do go and take a look at those. And just before I say what will hopefully be coming up in the near future, I want to say that I have at long last put up a donation button at the Mind Renewed website. Several listeners have expressed interest in making a donation to the work that I do here, so if you are one of those kind people who have contacted me about that, or indeed anyone else who might kindly consider helping me cover the costs of this ministry, then please do navigate over to the support tab at the website and follow the link from there. There are, of course, costs involved in doing this kind of thing. Hosting, domain, registration, telephone calls, some software and hardware costs. And I have chosen to shoulder all of those myself for the past five years. But I am now looking for help in covering those. So if you do value what I do here and you would like to see it continue, then please do consider making a contribution in this way if you are able. So in the weeks to come, I hope to be speaking with Frank Johnson about the Ancient Aliens series, uh, Dr. Robert Marks about his new book, Evolutionary Informatics, Challenging the Neo-Darwinian Understanding of Evolution from an Information Theoretical Perspective. And G. Edward Griffin has kindly agreed to join me. He is uh, organising the Red Pill Expo this year in Bozeman, Montana. That's the 23rd and 24th of June. And I'll be asking him about that event, of course, but also about the philosophy behind that event and broader questions 
about the so-called truth movement, if we may even speak in terms of there being a movement. What does that even mean? That's one of the questions, indeed, that I'll be asking him. Um, so I'll just say a little bit about that Red Pill Expo event. Um, and here I'm paraphrasing from the information on the website, which is redpillexpo.org. There will be highly acclaimed speakers who will be helping people to break free from the avalanche of propaganda, fake news and outright deception, and uh, helping people to embrace reality for a better life through hearing from leading experts in healthcare, finance, climate science, globalization, and politics. And it's going to be held in one of the most beautiful, clear-headed areas in the US. And of course, there will be opportunities for networking. Uh, but not for me, if only I could be there, but uh, obviously I'm stuck here in the UK. And in connection with that, Dr. Cynthia McKinney has also agreed to come on the show, formerly US Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, to speak about her life and activism and about the vision that she has for the world she would like to see. So that's in the weeks leading up to the end of June, um, plus any other interviews in the pipeline that happen to get the green light in the meantime so that is it for today thank you very much for joining me again on the show hope you enjoyed it um, please do remember to give the show a like on facebook or much more importantly a rating and or comment on itunes if in fact you do use itunes and i shall carry on here doing what i do god willing so that's it for today you have been listening to me julian charles of the mindrenewed.com and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.